One, uh, one word that's often used uh, to describe church or to describe Christianity is boring. Uh, we hear it, hear it often. Sadly, for me, in the conversations I have with most people, uh, it's, it's more often that I hear that expressed from Christians than I do from non-Christians. Non-Christians usually have other reasons or other things they, uh, they talk about, and it's usually the usual suspects that come out when we talk about church being boring. And that is, you know, it's, it's you know, 30 or 40 minutes of, of talking and you know the pastor may or may not be interesting uh, or entertaining or the the music isn't what we're used to or what we we like and there's all sorts of things but sometimes these these things come up and they cause us to to think of church as as boring and even Christianity as our lives as a little bit boring and so we've come up with all sorts of ways over the years to make it seem not boring. And so in, we've filled it with other things and brought things around to kind of try and make what looks or what appears to be boring seem not quite so boring. I've seen some videos over the last few weeks of, of pastors and churches and things. One, one pastor, this is before all, all the lockdown, uh, trying to bring excitement to his congregation had a flying fox where he'd fly from the back of the auditorium all the way to the front and got stuck halfway down. So he was just dangling over the, uh, the auditorium there and over everyone in the middle. That uh, didn't really work like they had planned. One pastor, I'm not sure what he was trying to, to illustrate, but had a big Harley which he rode on stage and then rode it straight off. Uh, and fortunately, nobody was, was hurt there. Most recent one I thought was saw was uh, one who was trying to make it all exciting for his church. They built this giant couch on the stage, and in the couch was a trampoline. And so he was just standing there, jumping up and down on his his couch. It looked a lot like what our house looks like uh, with with our children jumping up and down on our couches. All of this to try and make church seem not so boring and entertain us. The biggest problem for us isn't that church or that Christianity is boring. Our biggest problem is that we think it's boring. And we've, we see it as boring. When this is true, when we, when we look at Christianity, when we look at what Christ does and what we're living and then where we go and worship in church, when we see that as boring and we need to spice it up with Harleys and trampolines and things like that, or even try and figure out some way in our own lives to make it seem interesting. Something is wrong. We're missing something. Something isn't what it ought to be. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we as, as pastors shouldn't be uh, learning and, and growing in our communication skills so that we can be better at what we do at communicating that. And I, I'm trying constantly to, to do that and learn new things as I learn to communicate more clearly and more concisely <laughs> and better, uh, or that we shouldn't learn new songs or do things a little bit differently. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. It's why are we doing them and what is it for? You know, there are some Sundays that, that I wake up in the morning and I, I get out of the bed and, and I wake up and I feel discouraged and I feel tired because I'm looking forward at the day and, and I'm, I'm seeing, you know, well, 
before we're going and there's all the setup that needs to be done and there's the packing trailers and, and getting there early and doing all the setup and then it's all going to be taken down after the service and all. And even nowadays it's setting up cameras and getting things ready and there's all of this to do and then you wonder, is anybody going to show today? Uh, or, or you sit there on the edge of my bed thinking, I've worked so hard on the sermon, but is it engaging enough? Is it uh, helpful enough? Does it do what it needs to do? Or I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of, of the setting up every week or, or learning all of this new technology to do. And does it really matter? Is anything really going to change? And then I pray and then I read over the text for the sermon that day and this day and read through the sermon and I'm reminded to think about God and to think about what God can do. What we do as Christians, the way we live, and what we do here in this venue and normally when, when we meet, isn't empty or dead. Our, our boredom, or what would seem like boredom, comes from forgetting who God is. We're reminded today, as we'll look in our text today in just a moment, we're reminded today that, that God is great, that God is satisfying, and that he is living. Today we're going to be talking about this idea that he, God is the God of the living. And remember what that means, remembering that that makes the life of the believer anything but boring. Let's read together our text this morning. We're going to start in Luke chapter 20 and verse 27. Read through verse 40. So our text this morning, Luke chapter 20 and verse 27 says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as his wife, and he died childless. The second, uh, and then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, as we come and look into your word, we pray that we would gain encouragement and strength from it. 
that we would find in it a, a passion and a zeal of who you are in knowledge as well, that it would move us, dear God, to see the greatness of who you are and the glory of what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are. We're coming through this passage of scriptures we've said where there's a series of questions being asked to Jesus to trap him and to try and find out uh, a way to, to get him to be, be killed, get him turned over to the Romans uh, so they can do it. And there's this unlikely group of people who've gathered together and who've banded together to try and, and trap Jesus in a way. It's included uh, the Pharisees who were, were quite familiar with throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. There's uh, the scribes are in there as well, and also the Herodians, who we don't know uh, a lot of or don't see a lot of through here, but they're more of a political group through here, and we talked about them in the weeks past. But here we come to uh, another band here, or part of this band, which is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees pose a question to Jesus here, again, to try and trap him, to try and, and question his authority and completely disregard who he is. Now, as we look through this passage and see the question that comes and the answer, there's three things I want us to see about God, three things I want us to recognize about God as we look through this. And the first is this, that God is great. God is great. And because he is great, trust him. God is great, trust him. As we look to the Sadducees, this uh, religious group of of Israel at the time, if we look to the Sadducees, we see here a powerless religion, a powerless religion. We, we know more about the Pharisees and we know more about the priests here than we do about the Sadducees. Not a lot is given in information about them. What we do know about the Sadducees isn't good. In fact, every mention of them in the uh, New Testament or in the Gospels here comes with a negative uh, opinion of them. In Luke 20, verse 27, where our text begins, it gives us one of the biggest indications of their beliefs here that we have. And it says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. So they didn't believe in a resurrection. And there's an old joke that goes like this. They didn't believe in a resurrection, and that's why they're sad, you see. I didn't say it was a good joke. I just said it was an old joke. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in a resurrection. Now, like the Pharisees, they weren't priests. So it wasn't a priestly group. Uh, that did it. So they, they didn't perform temple work for the most part, most of them. But they were very influential in the life of Israel. They were the aristocracy so along with the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees formed the Sanhedrin, which was the, the ruling group of religious leaders through, throughout Israel. And though the Sadducees were fewer in number than the Pharisees were in Israel, they held a whole lot more sway, it would seem, in many parts of life. In the, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruler, the high priest there was usually a Sadducee. Uh, so like... Caiaphas and Annas that you see further in our, our stories here and our accounts of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. So they were a very influential group of people. Their focus was on the Torah. 
So that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Matthew, or Matthew, not Matthew, skipping Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their focus. They considered themselves to be experts in the law and experts on those five books. And they thought that was the, the main focus of the Old Testament. And so they looked at that as the, the key part. The rest of the Old Testament that they had was all inferior to that. Some of it didn't even matter because what was the key was those first five books. That was all that really mattered. We have a similar group running around uh, today and they call themselves the red letter Christians. Um, and what they say is anything in red letters in the Bible, so anything that Jesus said is authoritative, everything else is inferior to that. It's a very similar sort of idea to what the, the Sadducees believed. They were very concerned about the moral aspect of the law. So they would keep a very high moral standard. They didn't want to disqualify themselves from being able to serve or being uh, in, in an, uh, a place of authority and rulership. So they had a very high moral code which they followed. Amongst all of the things there that they believed also is although they, they believed and they, they studied the Old Testament and the, the law especially and they believed in the moral code, what they also believed is that God was uninvolved in the lives of people. They believed in absolute free will, that we determine our own destiny. We make our own choices and that God was uninvolved in that life. They rejected, as we see here in verse 27 of our text, they rejected the supernatural, which means not just the resurrection. They did indeed reject a resurrection and life after death, which means they didn't believe in a heaven or a hell. They didn't believe in angels or, or demons or any kind of afterlife, any of the spiritual realm they didn't believe in. The supernatural was not true in their belief. To them, this life was all there was. They lived everything for this moment, for this life. So they weren't living for a future. When they died, they believed that was, was it. Now, this is what I want you to consider for a moment. I want you to think about these men. I want you to think about how they believe and what this means for them. You know, there are many people that live just like this now, that still live with these same uh, basic ideas. And the truth is that many believers effectively live like Sadducees. We live really thinking that that God is uninvolved in our lives, that we make our own decisions and our own choices, and that's how our, our destiny comes about. We may say that we believe in eternity or we believe beyond that, but we don't really live as if there is more. And we talk about the power of God and we talk about what he can do, but we live our lives as if God isn't interested or involved and we fret and we worry about what is going on. It is, like I said there at the beginning, a powerless religion. It is short-sighted living. Short-sighted living. The Sadducees were a group which was much more political than the Pharisees. Because they lived for only this life, they wanted to change more of this life. And so they were much more political motivated 
than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, of course, believed in a resurrection much more literally. They believed in, in God and the activity of God in the world. But it's interesting to me that this, this group of Sadducees who had very little uh, belief in what God would or would not do in this world held to a very high moral code. They took the law of God, they took the, the laws that they found in those first five books of the Bible, and they were very strict on them. And they lived according to this and built on it and increased it. So they lived their law based on a, a very high moral code on the law. The question then is why? Why would you take these first five books of the Bible written by, by a God which you believe doesn't really involve himself in life and there is nothing after this life and why would you spend all of that time devoting yourself to a moral code that in the end really means nothing what is it going to accomplish paul warned us about teachers like this even in the new testament in second timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 he was warning us about false teachers saying that they having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That's the Sadducees right there. They had a form of godliness. They had this godly exterior. They looked like they were doing the right thing, but there was no power in their life. There was nothing behind it. They say they believe in God, but their God has no influence in their lives. No power and no future. When Matthew records this very same incident, he adds uh, some statements of Jesus, which Luke doesn't have here. And in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 29, when Jesus is answering the question, this is how he begins his answer to his question. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. So when Jesus answers their question to these Pharisees who say they are experts in the law, Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures, which you say you're experts in. And not only do you not know the scriptures, you have no idea of the power of God. This is empty, powerless religion. This is boring religion. This is what brings boredom, religion that goes through the motions but doesn't change anything truly in our lives. Imagine going to, to church each week with no expectation that God would work or following the rules of God and you weren't even sure that God cared or that God looked. We have a powerful God. This powerful God rules in a spiritual world. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear, even in the Old Testament. Although it doesn't speak a great deal about the resurrection, it certainly does some. And we saw that on Easter Sunday when we looked to, to Job to that. But overall, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that we are spiritual beings that exist in a spiritual world. We were created to interact with God, to join in, in worship of him with the angels, 
In Ephesians chapter 6, uh, it speaks of the spiritual warfare that we're in. It tells us that, that there is a battle that exists, that there is a spiritual world, and we are involved in that spiritual world. It tells us that there is life after death. There is a good life after death, and there is a horrible, condemning bad life after death. You can deny this, and you can live as if it doesn't exist, but that doesn't make it not exist. It does. We live in a spiritual world, and this powerful God that we serve is indeed one of supernatural power. In this spiritual world which we live in, God is supreme power. He is actively at work with his power. That, my brothers and sisters, is what makes Christianity decidedly unboring. It makes it genuinely exciting, filled with expectation and filled with power. Why? Why is it like that? Because God is active in his creation. He directs circumstances and he uses everything for his purpose. Everything he uses for his purposes. He is moving everything to its perfect end. No, everything is not perfect right now. But that doesn't mean that God is not moving it to perfection. That God is not moving it to where it belongs, to what he intended it to be, what he designed it and us to be. This pandemic we're in at the moment, which causes us to have to do church like, like this, this pandemic is being used by God. He is using it to bring about his great purpose. And as we look at this thing that's happening all over the world, every national leader is in place by God's design for this hour. The thing we, we look at, God is, is using and he is working all of this to his perfect and glorious end, to his great purpose. He is active in his creation. Why? Not just because he is active in his creation, but also because God changes lives. This is what makes Christianity so exciting because God is active in his creation, but also because God changes lives. He saves people out of condemnation. He takes people from the old life of sin and death and he brings them to a new life of, of glory and, and praise and transformation happens. Lives change. And when he takes us out of that, that life of, of death and condemnation and he brings us into new life, he continues to work in our life. He continues to make us more and more like Christ. And he empowers us to overcome sin. Do you still expect God to change lives, including yours? Christianity is decidedly unboring because God is active in his creation and because God changes lives. And thirdly, here this morning, because by changing lives, God can turn our world upside down. We read just moments ago in Acts chapter 17 how people accused Christians of turning the world upside down. 
with the gospel that they brought. Do you believe that God can turn your world upside down? Can he bring salvation into your family? Can he save the people you've been witnessing to and sharing the gospel with for years or, or those that seem so hard-hearted? Can he take the trial that you're in right now and make good out of it? Bring glory out of it, not just tragedy and destruction? Do you believe this? you believe it do you live like it god is great he is great the second thing i want us to notice this morning is yes god is great but also god is satisfying god is satisfying so love him the text which we read here the sadducees bring to him a question in this question, Jesus is going to, to show us a number of things. One of the things he's going to show us is that he provides our needs. But here, the question that's brought, is it's a silly question. It is a question without a point. It's one of those ridiculous questions which we, we don't know whether it's a hypothetical and that they just made this situation up or if it was a real situation. And it doesn't really matter whether it was real or hypothetical. No matter, the question was designed purely as a trap. They wanted to trap Jesus on his belief of the resurrection uh, and the afterlife. If he answered as they expected him to answer, so in more line with the Pharisees' belief that there is afterlife, that there is a resurrection, well then the Sadducees could completely disregard, disregard him as a complete and utter joke. But the question is a pointless waste of time. But as usual, Jesus takes it further than they intended. He answers more than what they asked. He's able to take their trap and use it to reveal their hearts. And he turns the question on its head. So he takes their question, but then he spins it to a deeper level to get to the real heart of the issue. And so what he says here is he says, you know, in verse, uh, well, we'll start at the beginning, verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So here's how Jesus turns the whole thing upside down and gets to the real question, gets to the heart of the matter. You see, the real question isn't whether they will be married in heaven. Jesus says the real question is, Will they be in heaven at all? That's the real question. Are they counted worthy to attain that age? So Jesus almost disregards their question about whose wife will she be and says that's not really the important question. The important question isn't whether they will be married or not. The real important question is will they be in the eternal age with God at all? Before that is answered, nothing else matters. And the same is true for us. You know, the questions about whether heaven or, or where heaven or hell are or what heaven will be like or all these other questions we often ask about eternity, many of them are pointless until we know 
the answer to the real question. Am I even going to be there? Am I even going to be there? Do you know what will happen when you die? Are you certain of where you will go and what will take place? If you're not, let me show you what the Bible says about this. You can contact me through the many ways that we have through uh, the internet or, or, or phone me or, or whatever. We can, we can talk about that so that you can know for sure. You can answer that question. Am I worthy to be in heaven? How can I get there? How can I be in this great eternal bliss? Jesus satisfies our need. Now, Jesus isn't being dismissive about marriage. So it's not that he doesn't think that marriage matters. Marriage is important, that God designed marriage and he designed it with purpose. The law they were using here, which you can find in Deuteronomy chapter 25, indeed said that if a man died without children, uh, if he had a, a brother who could do the job uh, by, by not already having his own family, should take the wife of the other so that it would accomplish two really important things. One, that it would keep what the family had within the family so it wouldn't be lost to others in terms of property. But also what it did was it was to protect the woman so that she wasn't left alone and destitute without any way of surviving and having to find her own way. So the idea of this was a way that God designed and intended it to protect people and to provide for the needs of everyone involved in the circumstances. Your marriage was created here and, and designed because God created us with the need for a relationship. We need each other. Men and women need each other. And here Jesus takes us from thinking about the, the marriage relationship as it is to looking beyond it to a more perfect relationship. He shows something greater. Marriage has another role just beyond providing for our temporal needs and meeting the needs that we have here and finding satisfaction in relationship here. It has another role. In Ephesians chapter 5, amongst other places, the Bible shows us that marriage is also a picture. It's a picture of Christ and his people and the relationship that God has, that Jesus Christ has with his people. So marriage reveals just a little bit, a little bit about our future. It shows, pardon me, that we need relationship. Marriage isn't the ultimate relationship. What it shows us is that, yes, we will find satisfaction in other people, and we will need to, but ultimately, we need to be satisfied with God. Though he says we won't be married, the Bible never says that those relationships uh, are meaningless in eternity. However, in heaven, the picture of marriage is complete. What it was pointing us to in its picture form is, is done. God's people will be with him. The need for companionship that was met in the marriage relationship is no longer there. Our ultimate relationship is now fulfilled. The one we were created to love and worship is now with his people. We're reminded here that ultimately God 
is all we need. That is the lesson we're learning here in this life. God is great, so trust him. God is satisfying, so love him. And thirdly and finally, God is living, so believe him. He is preparing a place. He speaks to us here about what God is doing and what he has before us. This place which is before us, this eternity which God is preparing and which we long to be in is so much more than you expect. So much more than you expect. You know, the other comparison that Jesus draws here is that the eternal is not the temporal, is not the same as the temporal. And that's how he draws it. He says, you are thinking about marriage in terms of this life, but let me tell you what it's actually like in that life. They're not the same. They don't work the same. They aren't uh, the same types of things. This life is simply a preparation, is simply a picture of what is to come. It is a shadow of what is ahead. Looking to eternity through the lens of of this life doesn't give us an accurate picture of what God has created for us in eternity. The things that we need here, like marriage, we expect that they will be in eternity, but we don't need them in eternity. The way of life is different. It's so much better. It's complete. It's perfect. It's satisfying. We're told in the scriptures that that we can't even comprehend the glory and the beauty and the magnificence of what God has prepared for us in heaven. What is ahead is so much better than you expect. We can't possibly comprehend it. So, while the Sadducees lived their life believing that God wasn't interested and they lived their life focused on this life only, we, the people of God, who believe that God is active, who believe that God is living, seek God's kingdom in this life. We live for the glory of the next. Sadducees lived only for this life. What an empty life that makes. There is so much more to live for. Set your mind on things above. Pursue the prize that is set before us. Seek God's kingdom where we will permanently live with him. He says in verse 37, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Remember, the Sadducees believed themselves to be experts in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses and predominantly cover much of his life through there and either side of it. So Jesus takes his illustration and he takes his point here from where they thought they were experts, the law, where Moses is at. And he uses that as the illustration. And that perhaps the greatest moment in Moses' life, that moment at the burning bush where God calls him to be his servant. And it's there at the burning bush when God introduces himself there to Moses at this point and then calls himself for what he's going to be to his people. He gives him his name and his name is I Am. 
I am. He does not introduce himself as I was or I will be. And when he speaks about his relationship with people that for Moses are past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he does not say that he was the God of Abraham, and he was the God of Isaac, and he was the God of Jacob. He says that he is their God. The Sadducees knew exactly what Jesus was getting at with this point. He knew that when God spoke about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like this, he knew he was speaking in the present tense. He was speaking about people who are not dead, but who are alive, even though they may not be on this earth anymore. Those who are in God, he says in verse 7, cannot die. In fact, he says they are sons of of God. They are sons of the resurrection. Like them, we can live with God forever. We can enjoy life and we can enjoy God forever. Be completely satisfied. He is the God of the living because he is a living God. It is the salvation which he offers which gives life. This eternal life is in God and through him. It comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and resurrected. And because he lives, we will live also. This wonderful, satisfying, eternally joyful life can be yours. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will have life. God is not distant. He is not uncaring. He is not an impotent being in this universe. He is living and he is powerful and he is all satisfying. In his life, he gives life. So those who have his life will never lose it. You're this, this truth this phrase in verse 38, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This is a very personal truth for our family this weekend. Saturday, yesterday, the 9th of May, marks exactly five years since our son Hudson left us. But Hudson lives today. He lives today. We will see him again. How do I know that? Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There's nothing mundane. There is nothing boring about believing in Jesus. He is life-giving, hope-filling, life-transforming. Are you living with that expectation? Do you expect God to work? Do you see life as a, the way God is moving us and all things to his perfect glory and plan? What did you expect this morning when you logged on? Preparing to watch this morning. Did you expect God to change lives? Did you expect God to change your life? Christianity isn't just about following some empty, pointless moral code. We are pursuing an exciting, almighty, 
and wonderful God that is decidedly unboring, magnificently exciting. I hope today minds can be switched to begin to see the excitement of following God, the expectation of what can be in living for him. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, and you want to know what I mean about the excitement and the joy and the the glory of what it is to be able to live for a God like this, please contact me today. Don't, Don't put it off. Contact me through through this thing. Send, send a message on, on YouTube or, or through Zoom or on my phone or email, which you can find on our website, however, and I will contact you and we can let you know how you can know Jesus as your Savior. Let's have a word of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reminds us of that we serve a living God who is the God of the living. God, forgive us for our low expectations, for our sometimes callous and cold hearts. We ask today, dear God, that you would revive those, that you would warm them and remind us of the excitement and the joy it is to live for you. We pray, dear God, that today, Lives would be changed through Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.